Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Alex McLaren. I'm an actor and I've worked as a communications coach since 2002. Now so much business is being conducted remotely, the ways in which we talk, present, build relationships and connect is changing. In this podcast, I want to explore all those issues and prove to you that no matter who you are, you can talk to anyone. Hello and welcome to You Can Talk To Anyone. I'm Alex McLaren. And I'm Tom Zielinski. And this week's topic is locker room talk, how boys talk to boys and girls talk to girls. <laughs> and I'm very conscious that there's two boys in this conversation and no girls at the moment. And this is a very binary conversation, Alex. Yes, this is very, <laughs> this is very reductive. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, so um, hello, everybody out there who uh, don't classify themselves um, in those either of those binaries. And um, we'll try and fold everybody into this conversation as much as possible. But we have to start from where we are. And I suppose uh, this feels like a really spicy conversation to talk about. Um, so uh, listeners, um, uh, please treat our hesitancies as openness rather than just paralyzed anxiety. Um, I, I'm interested in why why this would come up. And I'm, I'm thinking that when I'm running sessions with people, I'm very conscious of the gender balance in the room. When we met Tom as part of an improvisation company, it was very deliberate on behalf of you and Deborah that there was a 50-50 boys and girls split in the team. Do you remember yes. that? Okay, tell me a little bit about it. Well, as in a great many professions, comedy and improvisation is something which boys tend to dominate. And especially when you and I were starting, there weren't very many prominent female comedians on the telly. In fact, even, even 10 years ago, there were maybe half the number that there are today. It really has changed dramatically in the time that you and I have been contributing to the world. So we didn't want to be telling stories about boys doing boy things in boyland. Mm. Uh, with an occasional token woman to be the secretary or the nurse. We wanted to try and encompass a richer, more diverse range of human experience. Yes, I suppose I'm thinking of the sort of the gender balance of the groups I've been part of as an actor. Well, of course, when you start out in performing um, <laughs> at school, you'll find that there's, if, I, if you're at a mixed school as I was, that there's loads and loads of girls want to be performing. And so that in the, the audition stage, the girls massively outnumber the boys. But and if then you look at the discover when the parts yeah. actually start getting cast. That's exactly. right. Yes. The, the, all the good parts are for the boys. The boys do all the talking. When my son was at primary school every year, I'd do a kind of gender audit of the casting of the nativity play. 
um, and uh, it always uh, produced quite interesting <laughs> results. Um, that uh, and and also the the conversation uh, which often took place on Facebook on the PTA site um, was often very kind of polarized and emotionally, in which people would uh, I'd often find myself trying to fly the flag on behalf of the girls in the group. I wish they were doing more talking. And then the mothers of those girls would tell me, she doesn't want to do the talking, leave her alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, so that was, I suppose, my first experience of those kind of mixed groups. Then when I was, um, uh, the, the work I was most interested in was, um, I suppose the work I was doing a lot when I met you, Tom, was Shakespeare on the mm. one hand. Which, I mean, they're all basically blokes parts. And so in traditional for want of a better word, companies, there'd be far more boys than girls. And then also, yeah, improv and comedy. And when I was young, if I think about it, it was all, you know, not the nine o'clock news. There was one woman, Monty Python, you know, don't really go there. Um, <laughs> that they sort of said the balance is very, very male. But even outside those contexts, in a social context, you know, I have no sisters. So the the sort of the first talking I was doing was with my, with, among peers, was with my brother's. And then, you know, I had I have had girl friends all the way through my childhood and adolescence. Um, and I was just thinking about to the extent that, the way in which that shaped my assessment of this. Now, I remember Keith Johnston, who is the improvisation guru, some of whose views about gender and such like things can also be seen as fairly binary, regressive and old-fashioned. But I think he accurately said that one of the reasons that women find this a a challenging environment is because often you're starting with a very male-heavy group. And so when the boys try and encourage the girls in, they think that if they treat the females the way they treat each other, Mm. then they'll feel like part of the group. But I remember Keith writing, I think accurately for, for many people, most women find male bonding rituals absolutely horrifying <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and terrifying. Well, let's talk about what those male bonding rituals are. Well, I think it's very bound up in male aggression. Yeah. Now, there are some horrifying statistics about uh, violence and the gender split it's not mm. inaccurate to say that if men stopped killing, killing would stop. Most of the world's killing is done by men to other men, although a proportion is done by men to women. Women don't murder at anything like the same rate. And so a lot of male bonding is about either physically dominating or pretending to physically dominate other men or emasculating other men. <laughs> Yes, well, this is sort of viciously, you know, violently competitive dimension, and there's also these sort of important questions I think about the extent to which that's driven entirely by the hormone balances within the yes. person, or whether it's uh, a kind of a almost like a conspiracy between our bodies and the society that we live in, which sort of validates that kind of. Um, behavior and normalizes it and, and also suggests that that is the norm. Well, this is why I think this phrase locker room talk is so pernicious. I remember it being used by defenders of Donald Trump when he was running for president. It's used to excuse horrifying ways of talking about other people, particularly men talking about women. Oh, it's just locker room talk. Oh, it's just banter. It doesn't mean anything. Hmm. But when your conversation normalizes those kinds of attitudes, then people who think secret, dark, private thoughts 
can be encouraged to come to the conclusion, oh, that's normal. That's what everybody thinks, whether they say it or not. Yes. I mean, the reason I gave it this title when I was thinking about this episode was because of that event in 2016 when basically Bush, it was a hot mic incident, uh, of course, and that's kind of relevant about the sort of the private or the public context in which different modes of conversation take place. Um, He was on a bus with Billy Bush uh, talking about uh, effectively describing a a pattern of sexual assault (laughs) as if that was fine. Um, And Billy Bush joined in and enjoyed it. Uh, But the first time I heard the phrase uttered by somebody on the radio was by a woman within the campaign team. And uh, and so uh, the the normalising of it can often take place within the kind of alliances across the genders. Um, You sometimes hear proud mums talking about, oh, boys will be boys. It's a phrase used by women as well as men, mm, even, yes. if, uh, even if it's got problems. I wonder if it links to this whole thing about a private space to explore uh, ways of thinking that are exclusive to a particular group. I was thinking about um, uh, the, 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 when, when you overhear people talking among themselves when you're not one of them. You often kind of get an insight into maybe the way they, at least the way they talk to each other, if it's not the way they think specifically as individuals. But the hot mic thing I think is instructive here as well. If what you're saying among a private coterie of trusted individuals is something which you think would reflect on you very badly if Mm. it were to be heard by a wider audience, maybe you shouldn't be saying it at all. (laughs) <laughs> Here's a conundrum that was given to me mm. at a, uh, a training event many years ago, and I'd be interested to know what you thought of it. A woman who was much more experienced than I was, quite a lot older than I was, asked me, what do you do if you overhear people in your organization who are senior to you mm. talking about other people or other groups of people in a disparaging way, yeah, derogatory fashion, inappropriate or offensive. Tricky, um, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I'd say that the, uh, I mean, that that really raises questions about how an, an organisation works up and down the sort of the power chain. Really, um, uh, <laughs> I think that a healthy organisation should absolutely welcome every single piece of negative feedback which comes from further down the chain uh, at 100% and in fact should encourage it and should be big enough to be able to take it um, and graceful enough to think about how to make changes on the basis of that input. But um, I know that in the real world, uh, people further down the power chain feel very vulnerable to those in those uh, those those institutions. And I've it would have to be I mean, my advice for that individual would be on a case by case basis, dependent on a lot of, <laughs> yes. a lot of questions I'd ask about. Because you, you might think yeah. that going to HR is the best thing to do, but of course, HR's function is to protect the organization, yeah. not any one individual. And so you may come up against the queasy realization that what HR is weighing up is which of these individuals is more valuable to the organization. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Who's the asset? As, I mean, if, if any HR people are listening and they have some insight about this, please pass it on. I, I'm very aware, Tom, that you and I get asked these questions because we are uh, free agents walking mm. into big institutions um, and 
uh, and so we're, we're, we're a safe person to ask it to. But I also find that when I'm, I'm tackling it, I'm very aware that that isn't my world. Those uh, those kind of those strong, powerful cultures with very with built-in dynamics which affect one's freedoms within them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm thinking uh, about what the benefits of those groups are made up entirely of men and entirely of women. What's the, what's the upside of a group of men just talking together. Can you think of any? Uh, well, I think people have always sought out groups of people with whom they have things in common. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's uh, it's a slightly awkward word to use, but I think it's such a powerful one that I can't find a better one. We look for tribes. Mm. Uh, so you and I, Alex, are in the actor tribe. Uh, mm. We're also in the British person tribe. We're also in the white person tribe. Mm. Uh, we're in the namby-pamby, hand-wringing liberal tribe <laughs> as opposed to the aggressive locker room talk banter tribe. And so when you find people who you have that instant thing in common with, then you can associate with them. And the power of that is in its ability to bring people together. But it has a very strong negative component as well which is for the tribe to stay whole, it also has to have mechanisms for keeping people who don't belong out. And that's where the problems start. Yeah, I think also there's a groups can develop a kind of a sort of a party line very easily. That this is what we think about something. Yes. And that we all have to kind of learn that line and, uh, and maintain it rather than allow for the a sort of a, a more complex variety within it. Um, and I think that that's a real headache. Yeah, so locker room banter, I think, is composed of two things. It's composed, firstly, of establishing uh, that the men in this locker room are better than all the men outside it and vastly better than any women. Uh, (laughs) And then it's about establishing the pecking order inside that locker room. Within it, yeah. yeah, And it's arguably a more safe and efficient way of doing it with verbal point scoring than by physical fist fighting but there's always the danger that if you are bested by words you'll retaliate with fists or worse so there is this sort of latent hint of violence underneath it which is why i find it so distressing to be around well here's let's look at this bit a little bit as well about sort of the jokey side of it all because one 
way in which people who are accidentally hot mic'd in those kinds of conversations um, will uh, attempt to slightly ameliorate the damage it's called. It's to say, no, no, we're joking, we're joking. Um, and that uh, uh, one of the problems <laughs> that women in those environments suddenly face is they're expected to, to live with uh, sort of a, a vision of the patriarchy, uh, as if it's just something to laugh about, whereas actually it's not. The kind of the microaggression that creates over time is really painful. Um, I like there to be a fun atmosphere, but I'm also very conscious that jokes are very often about status games, which are often is sometimes a sort of a proxy for violence and competition. Um, and, uh, and a safe place for people to play with that. Um, I'm, I'm often assuming it, I think, um, but uh, establishing it is slightly different. Yeah, you can establish that you are someone who is happy to take a joke by lowering your own yes. status, for yes. example. Yes, tease me, that, please tease me. Yeah. That rarely happens in these locker room interactions. It's always about someone else establishing dominance by lowering someone else's status. By lowering somebody else's status, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And there's an argument for eventually everybody gets a jab in, everybody proves that they can take a joke, and it becomes a, a leveller. But it's a very risky strategy, I think. Yeah. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where, just thinking myself, of um, when I was at sixth form particularly, um, the theatre group I was part of was very women-heavy. And this actually, this is this may be relevant. I was a really late developer as a teenager, and so I think I found for a brief period that I was <laughs> very painful in retrospect, treated as an honorary girl sometimes. And, <laughs> and so I suddenly found myself, um, and this obviously wasn't happening at home because I, you know, just brothers, I'd suddenly found myself sort of being there as a conversation about menstruation and boys, which I felt almost like a fly on the wall for. And mm -hmm. uh, so uh, if any of my friends, are, uh, mates from that time listening to this, hello. <laughs> um, and that was kind of, it's a, an interesting experience. Uh, sometimes it is when you're literally overhearing a group of women talking together and you're on the other side of the divider in the cafe. Sometimes it's, you know, you're the only man in the room. And that sometimes happens to me at work, incidentally, in that I, sometimes I'm leading a group and it just happens to be entirely women. Yeah. That's a, that's a particular kind of atmosphere. You've had that experience much. Not as a teenager in the way that you have, but definitely yeah. I've turned up to training sessions and everyone there has been uh, a woman. And it is, it it's is awkward. awkward, again, for me <laughs> as a... Yeah. An ambipan behind ringing liberal to be standing in front of them as the epitome of the patriarchy. Well, exactly. Uh, <laughs> saying, now, girls, let me tell you something you don't know. Uh, but that's, I think, largely my paranoia. I've never had that sort of pushback. Mm. No, no, nor either. So thank you very much, all of you who's ever attended to those. Um, I, I'm aware that maybe because of the power dynamic, this is uh, it would be a very, very different conversation talking about how women talk together. Um, I remember, however hard we worked on issues about patriarchy within the spontaneity shop, there came a point in which uh, we started running, or Deborah and the women in the group started r running Hell on Heels improv mm. nights in which there were women-only improv companies because whatever our ambitions as individuals politically, we live within a massive uh, society uh, which works the way it does. And I know that providing a safe space for the more marginalised group of people is different. But I do look back on that group now and mm. I see it as very binary. 
Mm, yeah. We were doing lots of stories about boys and girls falling in love. Yes. And we had one gay member of the cast, and we would occasionally do uh, male gay yes. romance stories and be very pleased with ourselves for so doing. But there was no hint yeah. of any more gender fluidity, and there certainly wasn't any um, members of the cast or anything other than white. That's true. So looking back on it now, I, I find I was merely paying lip service to a lot of these the ideas of diversity and inclusion, which I professed to champion. Yeah. I'm not really part of this world anymore, but I, I see online people taking really proactive steps to try and change this perception of theatre in general and improvisation in particular as being exclusively white, mm. predominantly male, predominantly straight, which is mm. also kind of yeah. uh, you know, a, a little bit curious when you consider the reputation of Broadway, for example. Yeah, I was thinking about the fact that when we talk about just just conversation, we want it to be as artless and as unconscious as possible. Okay. Um, whereas when we think about these questions, um, which are you know, these these qualities are things that would just happen to us. You know, we we didn't choose to be this way, no. and so having to be conscious about, uh, okay, what am I saying? Who am I saying it to? What structure do I live within? That isn't something that people associate with the ease and authenticity that people are seeking when they just sit down and talk to other people. <clears throat> So I think that's one reason why this is a slightly gnarly question. Um, maybe when people are saying, when they recognize other people and they say, oh, well, you, it's easy for you, mm. they are seeing behavior and assuming that it's as artless and as unconscious <laughs> as their own, <laughs> uh, as the way that they tackle things. But actually, maybe it is product of a much more conscious and deliberate way of engaging with others. Um, I was thinking about when, I mean, I was at a party on Christmas Eve and I found myself sitting in the kitchen with two other men and no women. And we literally ended up talking about cars because I just got a car. <laughs> 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 hilarious. Um, and I kind of, I'm not a particularly car person, but um, I ended up asking them about things like the cruise control. And then in came Alicia. And I remember thinking, right, I'm now going to have to consciously and deliberately pick people up and bring them into the conversation and uh, and include them. So it was kind of... Was on the one hand, is you know, generous and inclusive, and I applaud you for it. On the other hand, though, it seems to be guided by the, the thought, well, a girl couldn't possibly have anything to add to a conversation about cars. Um, it was... Uh, sorry, the, the, I think the car bit um, and the arrival of the woman in the conversation was slightly separate, but I was just very aware that it had become quite a blokey conversation with the men. But I remember thinking, I'm now going to be deliberate because um, I can see the eye contact patterns that are happening from the people, these three men who've been talking for ages. And here is someone coming to join the conversation. So we are going to now be deliberately inclusive. And I'm very conscious of the pattern while I'm getting it going. But I'm also, in retrospect, thinking, I wonder how conscious and deliberate that will have looked from the outside. Um, so I think that um, for those of you who are, uh, are listening to this, um, I'd say um, your homework for the week um, is to be just don't be embarrassed about being deliberately conscious of the gender balance of the group that you're talking with um, and make deliberate steps 
to break what unconscious and inherited patterns that have been part of that conversation so far. Because however conscious and clunky and heavy it may feel to you, it will still achieve a different and pattern-breaking outcome for everybody else. And if there's one thing I've learned about talking to people in my time, if you make it about you, um, it uh, it doesn't work so well. Indeed. Uh, well, we run training sessions on all of these topics. Uh, we run them in person and on Zoom. We discuss things like better client meetings, smoother negotiations, presenting with confidence. Uh, so if you're interested in working with us, then get in touch. You can send us an email, info at thespontaneityshop.com, or give the Spontaneity Shop a call on 020-778-4080. Please feel free to get in touch with your questions and challenges for this podcast and tune in next week. All the best um, and uh, happy 2022. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye for now. You have been listening to You Can Talk to Anyone with Alex McLaren and Tom Selinsky. The producer for The Spontaneity Shop was Tom Selinsky. You Can Talk to Anyone is distributed exclusively by Acast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.